welcome back to Choose That Dobbses. Thank you all as ever for getting in touch and sharing your thoughts. Comment section below is the best place to do it. And as always, if you've got longer stories, maybe with some pictures, hi at choosedatdobbs.com. You can send an email there. And I've got an Instagram page, which is Tuesday underscore at underscore Dobbs, where I share a few pics. Let me start off this week with good vibes, good road tripping vibes all around. I begin with Richard from British Columbia. I'll share the pics as I go here. Freddie, these pics are of a trip me and my son took in British Columbia on Airhead BMWs in 2015. I love this. We decided to repeat the trip this past summer. Attached are some photos of the trip. I'll be showing all the pics, but I love this as the first one where you've got the two modern BMWs, the R9T and the GS, and below it, those classic BMWs. That's glorious. Those old classic BMWs are some of the most beautiful bikes. If I had room for a dream garage, I'd have one of those without question. And it always makes me think, when I see these classic BMWs, some of the most beautifully elegant, simple bikes, I would love it if BMW made one of these again. I know they've got the R9T, but just something ultra simple. Nothing, nothing too expensive, nothing too performance focused, just a lovely looking boxer engine, completely stripped back like one of those. That would sell, I'm certain of it. Richard, thank you. Move on. Freddie, I'm about to embark on my first solo motorbike trip on my 2004 Triumph Thruxton 900. I'm traveling, get ready for this, on a Thruxton, a cafe racer, I'm traveling from Malmo in Sweden, where I live, all the way to my father's house in North Wales, where, provided I make it, I'll be giving the bike a tank upgrade and swapping the stock tank for a five-gallon max replica. Fingers crossed. This is my first long ride. In fact, I know I've got this pick here. So this is the Thruxton in question. This is my first long ride and I'm on a rather severe budget. What's your absolute must-haves besides the obvious for a long trip? I'll do it question by question because Morgan's got a few here. Absolute must-haves for long trips. Phone charger and amount, completely essential. My Euro trips before I had a phone charger were infinitely harder. I remember I'd always have to have this really ugly phone holder zip my phone into it and be stopping at petrol stations to charge. Get a good phone holder, use your phone as sat-nav and have a USB port so you can just charge it as you ride. Total game changer. On top of that, very slim, low-profile waterproofs that can pack up into a neat little package. And finally, don't wear a backpack of any sort because even if you think, oh, I'll just have a small backpack, put a few things in it, it's incredible how even one or two kilos of weight on your back after riding for hour after hour can start feeling like they're about 10 times the weight. Even a couple of kilos can give you a bit of an annoying back where you're constantly Oh, shifting your weight to find a comfortable position. So do without a backpack. Next question, from your experience, what do you see people bring on a trip the most that never tend to get used? Okay, so what things have I brought that I don't use? Cooking equipment, forget about it. It takes too long and takes up too much space to carry any kind of cooking equipment. Just accept you'll be eating at pubs, 
or little bars, or if you need to save money, supermarkets, and maybe stopping off for a coffee in Starbucks, something like that every now and again, but just do without any kind of cooking stuff and it will save you so much hassle. Next question, how do you keep it light on packing but remain comfortable with what you have? Okay, don't pack any extra biking gear other than what you're wearing. So don't bother thinking about taking a light biking jacket. Only bring the stuff that you're actually wearing. Other than that, as long as you're not bringing cooking stuff, you can pack incredibly lightly on a bike. If you're taking tools, just find the exact tools that you think you'll need. For example, tools to take the battery off, tools to maybe lift up the tank in case you've got a pinched wire and wrap them all into a tool roll. Don't take any big amounts of different tools. Don't take a tire pump and things like that. It can just take up too much space. So only the bare minimum tools. And then all you need is a few different items of clothing for when you get to Wales. So two pairs of jeans, a couple of sweatshirts, that's it. You can pack it down even on a Thruxton, into a really minimal amount of space. When I went to Morocco, I'll put a pic here, I've got two panniers on my bag, on my bike, and I think that's all I took. I think it was just two panniers, that's it. And bear in mind, one of those panniers was all of my filming gear. Most people won't be doing as much filming as I was, so half of my packing was for filming gear. The rest of it was extremely minimal. I think I had one bag actually attached. But in essence, it's very little. Keep packing to a minimum, Morgan. I want to give one other tip, actually. You said you're on a severe budget. If your budget is really severe, like mine was in Barcelona, when I rode to Barcelona a year ago, I wanted to see how cheaply I could do it. So I turned off toll roads, for example. And because I was on such a tight budget, I managed to do England to Barcelona for £220. That's including the ferry crossing. And I wild camped, I just camped anywhere. And you can do this in England, although it is illegal technically, but so long as you're out of sight, you'll be out of mind. And my tip would be, I did this in Spain, it works well, and France. If you do wild camping, camp where no one can see you, but try and camp near a motorway services because they've always got 24 seven losing facilities. They've got coffee shops, decent food, and find a place at night where you can camp in a wood not too far away from a motorway service station. And that's a perfect place to end the night, go to sleep and to wake up in the morning. You know, you can clean your teeth, have a quick wash in the sinks and head off from there. So that would be my tips. Happy riding, Morgan. Send some pics over, I'll share them. Moving on to Andy. Freddie, I've attached a couple of pics from my recent trip to India. One of my work colleagues took me out on his Himalayan. Halfway through the day, we bumped into a couple of guys from Mumbai and one of them insisted I try out his Royal Enfield 350 Classic. Well, what an experience. Indian village life, amazing scenery, full of birds and wildlife that you would never see in the UK. Not to mention all the buffalo wandering along the roadside. Oh, I love it. And the Camo Himalayan as well. Fantastic. Fantastic. Andy, I hope you had a brilliant, brilliant time. Moving on to Ruben. Hello. My current bike is a 1999 Honda Shadow 750ace, American classic model. That was built, that was actually built in the US, I think, the Shadow. Do I remember correctly? I think, I think they're actually made in the USA, which I took this summer on a 1,400 kilometer road trip to the Nürburgring. 
Slowly cruising on some of the best B roads you can find in Belgium, Luxembourg and Germany, drinking coffee and soup along the way. Sometimes you don't need an uber expensive bike to have fun. The other bikes in the pictures, Yamaha 650 and a Kawasaki Z750. Besides chain adjustment and lubing, the bike ran just fine. Regards, Ruben from Valencia. You know, I love this Ruben. The eclectic mix of the three of your bikes, a cruiser, a pretty powerful Kawasaki Z750 that of course could easily leave your cruiser, but stick together, just riding in a group, all adapting to different people's riding styles. It's fantastic. It's what biking's all about. Moving on to Rich. Freddie, I'm a big fan of cafe races. I've always loved the look and, and I've always loved the look and feel of retro bikes. I ride a Triumph T120 pictures attached and like your Bonneville, this is my forever bike. So when I went on a family holiday to the Greek islands a few weeks ago, I thought I'd rent a bike and explore in between sunbathing and playing in the pool. So when I arrived at the bike hire shop, I was dismayed to hear that the bike I'd booked, or I was dismayed to hear that the bike I'd booked wasn't actually available and all they had was scooters. The rental company told, or the rental company rolled out a brand new 300cc Piaggio Beverly from the back. The rest of the holiday was a blur of forgotten moments, the smell of pine cones in the forests as we whizzed by, sun on my back, nipping through small villages and riding the beach roads. Total biking joy. Beverly, as she became known, grew on me. She handled beautifully, light, nimble, and with plenty of power. Handling was incredible on the winding roads and the huge boot made storing the helmet and much more just so easy. What do you think, Freddie? Was it just a fleeting holiday romance or the start of a new relationship? Rich, Rich, I promise you, that was, that was no summer fling. It was enlightenment. Scooters are an unbelievably brilliant mode of transport. If and when I have enough space, I would put a Vespa or a Honda Cub into the mix, just as a thing to ride in and out of town. It's a magic way to travel. Moving on to Joe. Freddie, my first long trip. Oh, this, this, the days back then. My first long trip on a bike was London to Carmarthen in Wales. On, wait for it, a 1970s Yamaha YB100 on learner plates. At the time, or on learner plates at the time, so no motorways the whole way. The A40, the entire distance. I left Saturday morning and returned on Sunday. That's 498 miles in total. Since then, even though I've had various size bikes, I've always had the most fun on the small ones. Joe, so many people say this, and so many people also say what you're about to say. And the craziest fun of all? Yamaha RD350LC. This is one of the most fun bikes in people's opinions of that era. If you're looking for a bike very of its moment that a lot of people will relate to and a bike that should be highly desirable, though I've never checked this, go and have a look at the Yamaha RD350. If it's not a surefire classic now, and apologies, I haven't checked, it definitely will be because people who know these bikes from back in the day, they covet these bikes, these Yamahas, hugely. I'm moving on to Sam. 
Took my Honda Forza 300. Scooter, these are the, the Honda scooters, just like the Piaggio and a 300cc as well. I took my Honda Forza 300 scooter all around France last year. That is 3,000 miles in complete comfort at 103 miles per gallon. It was an eye-opener on how easy and stress-free travel can be. Brilliant. I move on. I move on to, this is a couple of bits here I've got. People getting into biking. Often, the issues that we all face when we get into biking, while we're trying to figure out the kind of rider we are and adapt to that, whether it's the kind of bike that we buy or the kind of riding that we do. This is, and apologies for pronunciation, Loris from Latvia. Freddie, I'm 42 and my biking experience is exactly one year. Me and my mates got our driving licenses and bought bikes last year. I bought a Honda Transout 700 as my first bike. Some got KTMs and others got different bikes. But the problem is, while I see a bike as a tool to go on adventures and see things, my mates all consider road trips on bikes as a riding experience. I see motorcycles as a tool to see things. Old churches, villages, places and visit people. But my mates are all trying to get as fast as possible to spot B. I see the logic behind KTMs with 150 horsepower to drive fast and fun, but they miss all the vistas, burger drive-ins, weird trees, rivers, buildings, etc. I do understand the fun in the twisties and so on, but what's the point of a motorcycle if all you do is ride on the motorcycle? Regards, Loris from Latvia. Loris, I've, I've now experienced... So I just kicked my leg, hit my shin. I've now experienced both sides of this biking, being one of the faster riders in the pack and then one of the slower riders in the pack. And it took me a few years to move from one of the faster riders to being one of the slower riders when I realized that I enjoyed more the pootling kind of riding. And what I've learned riding with a number of different people, especially on the Highland Scramble in Scotland, when we had a big range of different riding abilities, and a big range of bikes, everything from the 1100cc Ducati Diavel, the muscle bike, all the way down to a 20 horsepower Himalayan. We had every end of the spectrum there. And you would think, well, come on, come on. You can't all be having fun with so many different abilities and different level of bikes there. But it was incredible. And it didn't matter the different levels of bikers because the only rule we stuck to when we were in Scotland with all of these different abilities is that as you're riding along, if you get to a junction where you turn either left or right, i.e. you deviate from going straight on, then someone just waits at the junction until the people at the very back can catch up. So, Loris, the thing I would say to you is ride your own ride. Don't worry about keeping up with them at all. Take it as slow as you want. And I found in my experience that bikers are more than happy to wait. It's of no issue at all. They'll wait by a corner. Let's say if there are three or four of your friends who are faster, they'll all go off, whiz along the twisties for five or six miles until they get to another junction. And they'll all just stop and happily chat and wait for you. I honestly don't think people have a problem with having to wait. I certainly haven't. If I'd been one of the faster people at the front waiting for people, 
sort of no issue at all. I think it takes a bit of time to get used to the fact that you may be holding up the group. But honestly, Loris, once you're, once you're used to the fact that it really doesn't matter that people are waiting for you and those people really don't mind that they have to wait, you'll be back in Viking heaven, I promise you. I move on. Another person, newish to biking. This is from Matt in Oxfordshire. Have a listen to this. Freddie, for 35 years, I've been a car guy but I enjoy following your adventures. I gained my full license in my mid-twenties, but never owned a bike, owing to family concerns for my safety, so I parked the idea. Now in my mid-forties, I find myself with more life responsibilities than ever. I've been told, I've been told to find a mindful hobby to help switch off, switch off and get out more. Your insightful broad church approach is encouraging me into my first biking experience. So I'm thinking something like a Royal Enfield Classic 350 might be an ideal starting point to finally make use of my bike license. But I have to be respectful of and do my best to mitigate my family's ongoing safety concerns surrounding getting a bike. I see lots of learner riders hugging or biased towards curbsides where the marbles or worst of the tram lines and potholes seem to be and only seems to encourage close passes by cars. I see what I assume to be more experienced riders often hugging or biased towards the centre of the road, presumably in readiness to pass the next car or maximise safety margin when passing hidden junctions, etc, etc. I've always been aware of everyday road dangers bikers face, having lost a friend to a bike accident and having several of others in hospital over the years, which has only strengthened my family's wishes for me not to become a statistic. But I think the potential benefits of biking outweighs the risks, as long as everyday risks can be mitigated against. Finally, my question is this. To give yourself the best chance of avoiding the unpredictable when simply riding along unknown roads, uh, when simply riding along unknown roads to you in good weather conditions without any specific considerations like proximity of junctions, etc., what is your preferred riding position? Bias towards the curbside, I'm doing this in the UK, so curbside, dominant position in the middle of the lane, or bias towards the centre of the road. Matt, for me personally, I like just sitting in the centre of the road and if I want to see or expand my field of vision, I'll go towards the middle of the road. So when you see bikers in the middle of the road, the reason for that is because it extends their field of vision as far as possible if there's a left bend and if they're over on the left-hand side, it extends their field of vision over to a right-hand bend as much as possible. So that's why they do it. But I can tell, Matt, that you're a deep thinker. Don't let, don't let overthinking stop you from fulfilling your biking. Is dream too far? Let me say dream. Don't let overthinking stop you from fulfilling your biking dream, your biking ambition, because if any of us overthink too much, it can stop us doing something. There is an element of selfishness with biking. We can mitigate against the dangers as much as possible, but we can never 100% stop all danger. 
And biking in general, with that in mind, can be as dangerous or as safe as you want it to be. We must be, and there must be, a slight element of selfishness. Because our happiness is as important as anyone else's. And if we're happy, then everyone around us is happy. If we're depressed and if we, if we aren't following enough of our passions, that could take us on a downer. It could make us slightly depressed and then that knocks on to everything else. So yes, biking can be dangerous, but look at the positives. It can make us so much happier. And if we're happy, everyone around us is happier. I truly believe that, Matt. Welcome back to biking. Move on, or I'm moving on to South Africa. Freddie, I'm, oh, this is a great one. This is a South African lady rider. Freddie, I'm sitting my direct access soon and looking forward to selling my KTM Duke 125 for something larger. Many years ago, in my early 20s, I had a lovely little Yamaha FZR 250. What a mechanical masterpiece, but life moved on. I got a car and left motorcycles behind. Unfortunately, I didn't convert my learner license in South Africa, so I now have to redo it all again. That said, I stay obsessed with two wheels, or I stayed obsessed with two wheels all my life. Riding and racing bicycles, mostly mountain bikes, for 40 years since my teens, very enthusiastically. I loved it. Amazing experience. So my two-wheeled history means my back and arms are thoroughly used to leaning forward. Sitting bolt upright on the little duke is not comfortable and does not gel with my instincts on two wheels. But sports bikes are not the image and culture that I fit with. I'm more young granny than lean mean racing machine. I'm currently, or I'm sure they will require high short insurance premiums. Cafe racer, yes. Mm, that's an option. Uh, regarding something old, adding clip-ons or flat bars to generate a bit of forward-leaning feeling. But there must be many options available to consider that don't require any customising at all. By the way, I'm fir firmly a buy-used vehicles buyer. And I'm old enough to consider all the fancy electronics on modern vehicles as just something else to fail, not to mention that I'll never use it. So my challenge, if you are kind enough to apply some of your experience and look into it for me, get ready. Could you please recommend a bike? 600 to 1000 cc with a lean forward position, but without the expected sports bike look and insurance premiums. I'm five foot 11 tall, very tall. 51 years young and happy to consider bikes in the region of three to five or three to six thousand pounds sterling. Age of the bike to consider, well, I have a 27-year-old Honda and a 23-year-old Toyota, both bomb-proof gems, I love them. The Duke is 2023, but as I mentioned, it's not my favorite, but it should sell. I'm thinking a Japanese bike, will be good, but Triumphs also have some good bikes. Thank you in advance. If you do share some knowledge and experience, best regards, Lisa. Lisa, I know the exact bike for you. You, I know you like Japanese bikes. I know you don't want a brand new bike and you've got a good solid budget for that. There's one bike that immediately, immediately screamed at me, Lisa. 
when I saw this message. So I didn't actually have to do any looking at all because it's a bike I mentioned a few weeks ago. It is Japanese. It's a Kawasaki W800 Cafe. I found you a 2020 model. It's the 800cc engine. They only come in one engine. Good, solid, proven, unstressed engine with 48 horsepower. And I found you one for 4,000 800 pounds. Okay, right, let's have a look. Kawasaki W800 2020 model. It's got 2,400 miles on the clock. It's in a beautiful deep green with those lower handlebars and that beautiful simple little fairing on the front just covering the round headlamp. And it's as beautifully simple, stripped back, classic cafe racer as you could ever dream of. It's pure elegance. It's a lovely looking bike that has gone completely under the radar, meaning that you can get really incredible deals. £4,800 for a three-year-old bike like that that will go on for decade after decade could be right back in the 1960s or 70s. I truly believe that will be the bike for you, Lisa. Kawasaki W800. It ticks every single box you've asked for. Let me know if you buy one and send a pic of it, please. Moving on to JB in Scotland. JB, good to hear from you again. Freddie, I was confronted head on with the parts, availability and servicing issue last week. I had been very tempted. Oh, JB, I'm, I'm surprised here. I'd been very tempted to swap my Honda CB1100RS pictured, stunning bike, for a 2020 Moto Marini Milano Limited Edition. A stunning 1200cc V-twin retro, a real rider's bike. Let me put this up here. Moto Marini. It's a bike I've never come across. And JB, I did a search on this, Moto Marini 1200. I couldn't find one for sale in the UK anywhere. It's apparently a real rider's bike. See motorcycle news here. Marini have a long prestigious history among Italian bike makers. I fancied a slice of Italian exotica. Marini were, were then bought by a Chinese company a couple of years ago and have since launched a new range of smaller 650cc bikes and continued or discontinued the bigger bikes like the Milano. It's a shame, but a future classic in the making, I thought. However, when I contacted my local Marini dealer, they said that they, there was no stock at all and no parts available for the Milano. They had no experience servicing the older bikes and they were very reluctant to service it at all. Even trying to get an English workshop manual online was nigh on impossible. So compared to the Honda, it's just a no-brainer. The deal is cancelled. It's just not worth the risk. I don't need Honda reliability, but I do need genuine dealer network. Choosing collectible classic bikes is getting harder by the minute, JB. JB, I, I would if I got that Moto Marini Milano limited edition. I... I would use it or have it only as, as a collector's piece. I would never ride it for that exact reason you mentioned. It would be almost impossible, I can imagine, to get any kind of parts for that to service it. Yeah, lovely thing to own, lovely piece of history. And classic Italian bikes like that will always be a beautiful thing to own. But to ride, to live with, difficult.
Let me move on to wrap up. And JB, I should say, I'm happy you're keeping that Honda. Lovely bike. Moving on to, to wrap up the service cost discussion we've been having. I wanted to share a few more of your points because there are a lot of people really quite angry with, with the state of main dealer service costs. If you buy a new bike, you've got a warranty. A lot of people think actually, I think it's incorrect though, that you have to get your bike serviced at a main dealer if you keep the warranty, to keep the warranty intact. But a lot of people have come back to me and said, you don't have to get your bike serviced at a main dealer to, to keep that warranty intact. So long as you buy OEM parts or original parts from the dealership, keep the receipts to prove it, you should be absolutely fine. So have a listen to these part, these last few points on this, because there are some quite eye-watering costs for servicing. I begin with Benjamin. I do slash did 45,000 kilometers a year on a single bike. It's huge. Servicing costs are half the price of the bike annually. So every year, Benjamin's paying half the price of the bike just in servicing costs. Moving on to Kevin. The price for service in most EU countries is completely outrageous. Even the cheaper Japanese brands are asking a lot for basic things. I owned a Yamaha and it was 160 euros for a small service, basically just oil change. And Honda charges me 200 euros for a small service on a Transap 750. But this goes hand in hand with inflation and the whole economic disaster currently happening in the West. Rachel, I got charged £1,300 for an annual service on my 2016 Triumph Speed or Triumph Street Twin. All fluids were changed, head bearing sets replaced, new chain, new sprocket. The bike had only done 7,000 miles at the time. Oh, Rachel, yeah, I feel for you, it's huge. Mr. Vulcan continues, got quoted $1,000 in labor for the valve inspection on my 2014 Honda VFR 800. Sod that, I bought the special tools for $140 and did it myself, and what a pain in the ass it is. Moving on to Colin, I had a 32,000 kilometer service on my Triumph Trophy SE. Total cost, 1,950 Canadian dollars just about had a heart attack. Pound sterling equivalent, 1,100 pounds. Moving on from Nama. I have to say that servicing your bike at home doesn't necessarily void your warranty. I've been servicing my Yamaha myself, and as long as you get your approved parts, that's oil, filters, etc. in my case, OEM, and I bought mine from my dealership and keep receipts, your warranty remains in force. This is true for Suzuki and Yamaha from my experience. Moving on to Geraldine. Freddie, Kawasaki charge 80 pounds plus VAT per hour to service a bike. That's about 100 pounds an hour service costs. Ah, that seems to be the case for me as well, Geraldine. Moving on to Chris. Moto Guzzi, ah, Moto Guzzi V7. Remember this point for the end of the, the episode today. Remember this. Freddie, Moto Guzzi V7 and V85TT allow for very easy owner valve adjustment. 
Having owned both, I have enjoyed perfect reliability and have been able to, or sorry, and have been able without any previous mechanical experience to do all routine servicing and maintenance myself. Motor Goodsy gives a two-year warranty and your warranty will not be voided by owner performing their own service as long as one keeps records for all needed maintenance and supplies. I don't know why in general. There are some good stories there, but I don't know why in general. Why is it more expensive to service a motorbike than a car? Someone tell me. I can't understand it. Everything's easy to get to. Motorbikes are incredibly simple. There's much less surely to have to check and to have to move about and unscrew on a bike than a car. Why? Why on earth is it more expensive? Bikes should be a budget form of transport. That's what they are. Okay, moving on. Remember what I said, Moto Guzzi V85TT? I've had too many people singing the praises of this bike. It has to be the bike of the week. Keep aside your prejudices of Italian bikes, of Moto Guzzi's, because I have heard almost exclusively good feedback from this V85TT. Customers and owners seem to be extremely happy with this bike. And I've checked Motor Goodsy forums as well, just to back up what owners have been telling me. And they praise ease of maintenance, solid reliability, and beautiful styling. These are all the top keywords and phrases that people have been using. And that, that key bit there, the first bit, ease of maintenance. That's a huge selling point, according to Motor Goodsy owners, that I'd never considered before. Now this bike, brand new, Motor Goodsy V85TT that I've had a day with, it's a lovely bike, I'm a huge fan. It's 10,450 pounds new. Motor Goodsy are actually doing a reduction at the moment, a sale on it, which shows that probably sales aren't gigantic. Came out in 2019, it's got 80 horsepower, it's a V-twin with the most uniquely glorious Italian styling for an adventure bike, I think, out of anything on the market. Bear in mind at that price, £10,400, you're only looking at £900 more than the Honda Transalp. So I found one for you here. On Autotrader, £6,950. It has 3,000 miles on the clock. It's immaculate, private seller, full service history from 2020. So it's a three-year-old bike or a three-year-old bike and you're saving, tell you what, they hold the value pretty well. You're saving just under £3,000. So it's only about three, taking into account the inflation, you're People have probably only lost around about £3,000 or so in depreciation over three years of ownership. So they clearly hold their value decently well. But the fact that you can get one of these beautiful bikes in immaculate condition for under £7,000, I think that makes it seriously tempting. And I'll end this week with a quote. It comes from Hunter S. Thompson, just like last week. But this is a favourite quote from ZRX1100. He shared it with me on YouTube comments last week. And I thought this ties in perfectly with the gentleman who's looking to get back into biking, but not sure which lane of the, or which part of the lane he should be in position-wise on a bike. And also if he should get back into biking at all because of the danger element. I begin. Freddie, my favourite Thompson quote. 
Life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride.